So what's the big problem with wealth creation? How do people like us, who didn't inherit a boatload of money, who are investing and building wealth from our own blood, sweat and tears, how do we invest in a way that gives us remarkable results and become financially free before retirement age? I don't know about you, but I am sick of hearing from wealth gurus and experts who don't walk their own talk and prescribe strategies that are a one-size-fits-all approach. For self-made people like you and me, I'm here to tell you that you don't need to be superhuman or already wealthy to reach financial freedom earlier than 65. This is the Alternative Investing Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, I want to actually respond to a question that I received around how do you navigate and stay safe during uncertain and volatile times such as the period of the market cycle that we are in right now. And I wanted to refer back to a piece of content that I designed inside of my program, but I want to share here for you because I think it's a really valuable framework to use when you're thinking about your next move or things that you need to undertake to make sure that you stay safe over the next 12 to 18 months as the market unfolds. Now, I want to preface everything that I'm about to say by kind of highlighting concepts I've raised in other podcasts, which essentially say that we have no real mechanism for predicting the future. As much as there are people out there, influencers, media, economic houses, all these data houses who are trying to forecast what will happen in the next 12 to 18 months, the truth of the matter is, and I keep harping on about this, is nobody really knows. Frankly, forecasts are about as reliable as the weather forecast, probably less so. And there have been countless studies which have, you know, longitudinally proven that forecasts cannot be relied on. They're they're pretty random. So, with that in mind as the context, what I really want to do today is take you through what I call my eight limbs of wealth stability. Now, you know, when we're in a boom cycle, these things may seem less relevant and we can study as much theory as we like around the concept of how do we protect our wealth, diversification, things like that. But frankly, most investors give it lip service. And it's not until a black swan event or something, you know, of, of a great magnitude happens that people kind of go, oh, crumbs, I really should have paid more attention. And where we are at right now in the market cycle is there's fear in the market that is clear. There is high, high uncertainty and people are kind of waiting to see what the fallout is going to be. So, could it be diabolically bad? Yes. Could it be a soft landing? Yes. Uh, Also, that is correct. But what I don't want is for you to feel that you're caught with your pants down and you're not prepared and you haven't thought things through. So, these eight limbs of wealth stability, I kind of presented them to my community of high net worth investors maybe about four years ago now. And I've touched on aspects of this in past podcasts episodes, but I really want to revisit it and put this into context of where we are in the market. There is no question that there are going to be some people who hurt uh, both in the property market and the share market uh, second half of this year. At the moment, and I've talked about this a lot, I think there's still a little bit of a holding pattern happening right now where buyers are not ready to capitulate and drop their prices and buyers are kind of reading the signs of the market and saying, well, we're not prepared to pay those high prices anymore. And so, with that being the case, really, you know, 
until we start to see some leeway from either side of that equation, we're not really going to see a big shift in the market. It's happening very gradually. Certainly, I keep a a watch list on realestate.com of properties that I'm watching more for interest sake. I look for development sites and I look for the dream homes and things like that. That is more of a uh, guilty passion than anything else. But the point that I'm trying to make is one of the things that I'm anecdotally noticing, and this is without looking at any data, is properties that would have been snapped up in minutes flat 12 months ago are now just sitting on the market. So, clearly, we are coming up to the, you know, the precipice of a cliff here of some variety. So I guess where I'm going is that that is the framework, that is the the backdrop. These eight limbs of wealth stability are vitally important if it is your desire to not only preserve the capital that you have, but also continue to grow your wealth regardless of market cycle. And that is ultimately the aspiration of a successful investor. They're aware of their market environment, but they don't let it overshadow their, you know, wealth building efforts. They adapt and they recognize that market conditions require adaptation on a number of levels, but particularly around protection of what you have and then investments that you undertake from a strategy perspective. So, number one, the first limb of wealth stability is this concept of diversification. Now, I could talk probably underwater for eight hours on this concept. It's something that has been a very big conversation inside of my community because generally speaking, people give complete lip service to this idea of diversification. It's not just about you know geography or it's not just about saying, well, I'm investing in two different companies. It's about thinking of a multifaceted approach to diversification. So, different markets, different assets, different managers, different deal makers, different liquidity points, all these different ways of looking at diversification and then really asking yourself, am I diversified enough that if this market were to tank, I would be okay? And essentially, the game that we're playing inside of our community is how to make sure that you take small bites of enough different cherries that they themselves might be diversified in so that you end up in a situation where if one investment completely tanks and you lose your capital, you're still okay. We've spoken a lot about loss reserves and all of those sorts of things, but at the essence, what I'm really trying to emphasize is this concept of diversification. It has to be something that you don't just give lip service to, but that you actually, you know, think about when you're looking across your portfolio. Now, at the highest level, one of the, I guess, metrics that I get people to look at every now and again is just a simple pie chart of where are their assets? Where do they lie? And, you know, when people generally start working with me, they're really heavy. In fact, they might even be 100% all in on one particular strategy. And I'll give you the best example of this. I have a client who is all in on commercial real estate. Not only is he all in on commercial real estate, but he's all in on one sector of the market in one geography, all the same sort of tenants. So, super, super undiversified. And I think through being part of our community, he's recognized that there is some vulnerability around that and that it is in fact time to reconsider that, even though it has served him really well. And if you subscribe to the Warren Buffett perspective of being super concentrated in the way that you invest, 
then that concept may be perfect. You might be perfectly at home with that. But the truth of the matter is Warren Buffett has had some massive losses and generally has taken a very long time to achieve the wealth that he has. And he would argue that because only 10 out of 500 odd stocks that he's invested in have actually worked out, that that's an argument for concentration. But I would actually say we all don't necessarily have his level of skill. And so the vast majority of the world-class investors that I rub shoulders with are really hammering this concept home, diversify, diversify, diversify. So that is something that I would encourage you to look at within your own portfolio. Understand that if you are all in on one asset class, in what other ways are you diversified? And if the market were to tank, what would the impact on your personal wealth be? And that's really all we're asking you to look at here. The second, number two, is dependence on a rising market. So, one of the most fabulous bits of content that we've kind of shared in our, in our community has been around differentiating between investments which are investment grade versus speculation. Now, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about most property markets, when you do a typical buy an asset and hold it for appreciation over the medium to long term, that is speculation. Funny as it may seem, that is in fact speculation. And the reason it's speculation is you are banking or speculating on the fact that there will be a rising market to lift the tide and to rise the value of the asset that you hold. Now, if you do some of that, it's okay. It means during boom times, you do really, really well. If, however, you are all in on that strategy and then there's a market correction or a pullback or a crash or a black swan event, that is when someone who is all in on this concept of depending on a rising market can really, really suffer. So, it's really important that you look at your portfolio and ask yourself the question, if the market were to tank, go sideways, pull back, whatever the language is, how would you fare? What would that do to your wealth building efforts? For some people, particularly in the share market, a massive drop in the value of your portfolio could absolutely wipe out hard-earned gains that have taken years to achieve. And I recall a number of people who were on the cusp of retirement just prior to the global financial crisis and then essentially because of losing, say, 40% of their, their net worth had to actually delay retirement. And so, you know, this dependence on rising market, if you're young, you can afford the ups and downs because your, your runway to financial independence might be some distance away. But if you're someone who plans to exit the active workforce at some point in the near future, this is definitely something you want to think about. And again, I think this dependence on rising market becomes less of an issue if you are holding assets which deliver you consistent, sustainable cash flow, which is what I'm a huge advocate of. So, number three is dependence on your time, skill and input. Most people that I work with have a passion or a job or a business, which means that that other hobby, passion, you know, vocation relies on them to put their bulk of their time and energy there. Investing is, as I've said many times over, it has a different cadence to active income. So, what that means is that your day-to-day job or your day-to-day business might require huge amounts of time and energy, whereas investing 
doesn't require much time necessarily, but just requires a regular cadence of keeping and monitoring and checking in. So the question you have to ask yourself is when you look at your investment portfolio is, is it highly dependent on your time or your skills or your input? And if the answer to that is yes, you have to ask yourself, is there any vulnerability around that? I'll give you an example. Um, I have a really smart client who is working in a very, very high pressure job. Um, it demands a lot of time and energy. And in the background, as a bit of a side hustle, he's doing some development sites. Now, he has the energy and has recognized that he has this window of opportunity where he can more or less do both. You know, sometimes it's very stressful for him. Sometimes his ability to just get enough sleep is compromised, but he is consciously taking on that challenge because he sees he has this window while he's young enough to, to be able to do it that will set himself up for the rest of his life. The same scenario for somebody else, whether they're the same age or maybe older, might be completely unpalatable. I know that I look at the hours that he keeps and the effort that he's putting in and I don't think I could sustain it. But he's doing it really consciously. So, again, from the concept of wealth stability, what I'm suggesting to you is if you have structured a portfolio of investments which rely heavily on your time, skill or input, you need to possibly think about rejigging that because in periods of high volatility, generally speaking, the rule of thumb is that you will actually need to put more time and skill and input into those investments. So, that's really an important one. Number four is independence or dependence on your income or other assets. So, this is a uh, one that I would say is maybe a slightly more sophisticated, more advanced concept. But since a lot of you are asking for this, I think you obviously have the appetite for this information. And the bottom line is that we all initially when we go into the workforce, endeavor to take on assets that are going to give us the maximum ability to grow our wealth. And that's pretty much the norm. Sometimes we bite off more than we can chew and then chew like hell. But essentially, what we have to be really mindful of when we're entering periods of high uncertainty or volatility is how much does our investment portfolio depend on our personal active income or our other assets? For example, if you feel that you were in a situation, and I know many were at the beginning of COVID, where their income was supporting a very large portfolio of assets, then there is some interruption to that income and the house of cards comes falling down. Or in the case of dependence on other assets, have you structured debt around your assets in a way that it's all cross-collateralized, all tangled up so that if one asset drops, the whole portfolio drops. And I've given examples in the past, but essentially that can be very common around commercial real estate. Say, for example, a person who has a large portfolio of property might have one commercial property in the mix. The commercial property goes vacant. And as many of you know, with commercial real estate, depending on what it is, there can be some complexity and time to putting new tenants in. In some cases, commercial real estate can be vacant for years or months, depends on what the asset is. But essentially, I've um, witnessed someone who's had a really great portfolio and one killer, very large commercial property. And essentially what happens is the commercial property has gone vacant, it stays vacant, it is unable to find a tenant, and eventually the burden of cash flow going out the door 
maintaining the loan on that property ends up starts off that it just erodes the cash flow from the other properties and then ultimately wipes out the entire portfolio. So it's not common, but you just need to be aware that that can happen. And so when you ask yourself the question of how dependent is your portfolio on your personal income or other assets that you hold, this is really, really important to kind of give this a a red or amber or green. And I should mention with all of these things that I'm saying today, these eight limbs, everything, really what I'm ultimately saying suggesting you do is give yourself a red, amber, or green traffic light against each of them. So, number five, moving on to number five is reasonable liquidity. You know, everybody understands the concept of emergency cash reserves, but unfortunately, if we're pushing the envelope, if we're trying to stretch and optimize our wealth growth, we tend to erode it. We tend to not hold enough. Potentially, we're not thinking about black swan events. We're just thinking about day to day. And, you know, one of the things that's come up in conversation a lot with a lot of my clients is their frustration, huge frustration around insurances, whether it's building and landlord insurance or personal insurance, life insurance, income protection insurance. And one of the things that a number of people have shared with me over the last few years is they go to make a claim on insurance thinking that's their safety net. And then the insurer finds some small fine print, which basically means they get out of paying that premium or that that income stream. And so, I have become a little bit cynical and skeptical about insurers in recent times. I've even had clients who have claimed on something really simple like flood damage and had the insurer worm out of payment on the basis of, of some, you know, minor detail that was buried in the, in the fine print. But the point I'm making is that this concept of reasonable liquidity becomes infinitely more complex when you're not just talking about keeping a, a rainy day cash buffer, you know, in case you need to just get by for a few months. But if you've got a, a large portfolio of property, you need to be thinking about, well, not just, you know, what if I need the money, but what if properties go vacant? What if I don't earn the income that I thought I was going to earn? What if my dividends are less? Whatever the kind of permutation of possible dire events looks like, the question of reasonable liquidity has to be examined significantly more carefully as you grow your portfolio. And I think there's a lot of investors who right now have not maintained reasonable liquidity who maybe have redlined their finances a little and now they're looking down the barrel of a probably at least a 12 to 18 month period of high interest rates, compressed you know, returns and potentially the rental yields that they were hoping for maybe haven't kept pace with the cost of holding that property. And so, it'll be really interesting to see whether there are a number of investors who are forced to sell investment properties in order to alleviate that. And, and you know, my heart breaks for those people. They've worked so hard to get their foot in the door on those properties. And then suddenly, because they just really genuinely can't afford to hold them because they haven't kept adequate liquidity and cash reserves, that they're forced into a situation of taking a step backwards. The next uh, limb that I want to talk about, so where am I up to? One, two, three, four, five, six. Number six is assets outside of the median or highly speculative. So, this links to something that I said earlier, but essentially one of the key principles or fundamentals that I've been a huge fan of for many years now is if you think of every single property as sitting along a spectrum where you've got 
absolute cheapy slumlord style properties at one end and absolute blue, blue, blue chip, super expensive properties at the other end. And possibly this all applies to shares, as uh, less to shares actually, let's stick with property. But essentially, if you were to um, draw a line reflecting the volume of properties, then what you would probably find is that there is a what they call a bell curve. And what the bell curve means is that the greatest volume of properties sits kind of not all the way down the slumlord end and not all the way up the blue chip end, but kind of round the middle. It's like this big pregnant belly in the in the line in the curve. And one of the things that I have kind of intuitively realized as time's gone by is that where I want to hold uh, my property portfolio is as close to that midpoint as possible, maybe a little below or a little above. And the reason for that is it gives me the greatest pool of prospective tenants. And in the event that I have to sell, it gives me the greatest pool of prospective buyers. And in a period of time right now, what I'm witnessing, as I said to you earlier, is that the properties that sit right down the blue chip end of the market are staying on the market longer. And similarly, I think the slumlord style properties hold less appeal as well. So, it's the properties that are in the middle that are having the least amount of difficulty. And, you know, you could, you could extend that and extrapolate that to all other aspects of investing too. Essentially, I want the greatest pool of renters to be able to rent my property successfully. And I want to know that if I had to sell that I'd have a ready pool of buyers. So, the, the thing that I'm asking you to evaluate is how heavy are you in your portfolio around properties at either end of the spectrum? So, that's a really, really important one. And then the next one is this reliance on tax benefits or change of government. So, there are a number of people who have specifically focused on an investment strategy because of some tax incentive. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but if you're highly reliant on that and let's say, for example, that disappears tomorrow, either because there's a change of government or a change of policy or something happens to that provision, if you are really hurt by that, and please believe me when I say there are people who have done exactly that. I know, for example, in the States, in the US, there were a lot of people chasing investments which offered modest returns, but exceptional write-offs, exceptional depreciation benefits, purely because they wanted those tax benefits. And then the investment itself went south and suddenly that's just not as exciting or attractive as it once was. So, you know, there's a lot of people that I speak to, especially high net worth investors who are fixated on reducing their tax. And my personal opinion, it's putting the tail before the dog. And, you know, really what we need to make sure of is that even if we're incentivized to enter an investment because it does offer great tax benefits, we still want to make sure that it's in alignment with our investing rules and based on sound principles. And I think that those people who've maybe pursued strategies because of tax incentives may find themselves in difficult periods if big adjustments are made in the future. So, you want to be really mindful of that. So, again, give yourself a red, orange or green traffic light for that. And then finally, number eight, um, exposure or reliance on the banking system and finance. So, clearly, this is a critical, I guess, aspect for both investors and deal makers alike. And essentially, you've got to be careful that you haven't, you know, jumped in on a particular product in finance or with a particular bank simply because it was cheap 
without recognising that there was going to be a reset or taking into consideration charges and, and some of those kind of finer print details. Things like early exit, early payment, ability to refinance, all those things, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but if you are running a strategy which is highly dependent on number one, stability in the banking environment and finance, in addition to your relying on continued access to credit in order to continue your portfolio, and you know, particularly in, in our country and a lot of Western countries around the world, the limiting factor on your ability to grow your wealth isn't necessarily on the availability of deals, it's on your income. And so with those things combined, it's really it's even more important, I should say, to make sure that every asset on which you undertake a finance component, you know, really achieves the outcome that you are after. You cannot afford to carry lemons. You cannot afford to carry big fat lazy pandas. And if you are in the unfortunate position that you can't do any further investing without bank finance, without lending support, then you are going to be stuck and slightly vulnerable for the next 12 to 18 months. So again, just have a think about that. And, you know, I guess the story that I would share is I think it was in about 2009, we had quite a a large property portfolio at that point, but I hit my limit with the banks and the banks said no more. And it was what made me start thinking, what else? Like, what else could I do? And so, if you are in that situation, that is a what else type question. And that was really the, the start of my foray down the alternative investment path. So, guys, those are the eight limbs of wealth stability. So, diversification, dependence on a rising market, dependence on your time, skill and input, dependence on your income or other assets, reasonable liquidity, assets that sit outside the median or which are highly speculative, um, reliance on tax benefits or change of government, and then finally, exposure or reliance to the banking system or some kind of finance. So, if you can even start to get a sense of where does your vulnerability lay? Is it that you're a green light all the way or are there some ambers and reds in there that you kind of need to give some thought to? Now, any one of those isn't necessarily a deal breaker. It's just a red flag that maybe there needs to be some attention given and some action taken. You might find yourself in a situation where there is no action that you can take, which effectively puts you in a stronger position, but perhaps you could work towards it. So anyway, guys, um, I hope that's really helpful. It's certainly the foundation for a lot of really high quality conversations going on in my world and certainly in your host household or in your world. I hope that it triggers the same. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to the Alternative Investing Podcast. If you're feeling frustrated that despite doing everything right in the property investing playbook and you're no closer to financial freedom, then head on over to incosiwealth.com to learn more about how you can use alternative investments to catapult your investing income and blend strategies to shave decades off your timeline to financial freedom. See you on the next episode.